So for our first message today, we have a split sermon by Mark McGarvey uh, entitled, His Majesty. Good afternoon. I want to talk uh, up front about my my position on the British royal family. Full disclosure, I am of Irish heritage, so the Irish and the English don't have a, a great relationship over the last few hundred years. But I will say um, I, I do respect, I always have respected the royal family. Um, the Queen, who is on the throne right now, has been there for 60 I think it's the 64th year. Matt will correct me on that if I'm wrong, I'm sure. But she's been there a long time, and she has uh, led that position with honor, faithfully, um, and with a typical British stiff upper lip, as they say. Um, but I wanted to get that part of cross first, my full disclosure. My ancestors probably fought against the English five or 600 years ago. Um, so the reason I've mentioned the British royal family is I want to compare man's kings, earthly kings or queens, and the greatest king of all, the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Jesus is seen as many things, our older brother, our high priest, but when we see him as king, we see him in all his glory because it signifies his power, his position as our leader, the one who was God in the flesh when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. So I want to turn to my first scripture here, 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 through 16. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verses 13 through 16. Verse 13, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone has immortality, and because he is God, he can never die. Paul neatly explains to Timothy in this passage, in a couple of sentences, the nature of God and urges him to keep preaching the truth. An example of a king that a lot of Americans know is the King of England who was George III during the American Revolution. And his idea on the colonies was to the extent that, okay, I'm king and America is one of my colonies. They are subjects of mine, they will do as I say. And 
there's no thought about what they thought. And, and with a lot of kings and people in, in power, the people come away down the totem pole and what, what the king's ideas and thoughts are. And so after many years of the Stamp Act, uh, all the other acts that the British government sent, the Americans finally had enough. And the talk of revolution began. And King George never, you know, moved from his position. And the taxation without representation occurred. And again and again, the Americans asked for some leniency, for some help. You know, we can rule ourselves here. Let's govern ourselves. And King George never moved from his position. So, you know, the eight years of the revolution occurred, 1775 to 1783. And as America was beginning to set up its initial first government, uh, before the Constitutional Convention in, in 1787, uh, John Adams, one of the founding fathers, was sent to England um, by the, I guess, the what was beginning to become the American government. It hadn't officially formed yet, or the Constitution hadn't been formed either. So on June the 1st, 1785, John Adams came before King George. And an appointment had been made. And he was the first, let me get this right here, this is the, <laughs> a mouthful right here, the first United States minister plenipotentiary to Britain. Plenipotentiary meant a diplomat fully authorized to represent a government. It later became ambassador. So, and this um, meeting with the King of England was portrayed pretty good in the, in the miniseries John Adams, which you know, ran eight or nine years ago. And I remember, I've only ever seen the, the series one time, but I remember that, that scene distinctly, because what happens was, before his meeting with the king, John Adams met with uh, one of the, the high up guys, maybe part of the royal household, I'm not sure, of how to meet the king, what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to say. And when it came to Entering the room, the throne room of the king, there had to be three reverences. And what that was, first of all, when you came into the throne room, you had to bow once. And not just a, a bow like this, you had to go fully all the way down like this. I mean, it was incredible. So, and you made sure that he saw you do that. Upon entering, you walked a few more feet to the middle of the room, bowed again. And then one more time, as you come before the royal presence, one last time, one last time, a final bow, and avert your eyes until you came before the royal presence. Don't look at him until you get that last bow. Then you can look at him. The whole situation is, is tradition, was tradition, but it also goes to show the superiority complex, or the I am royalty, you are not, you must humble yourself before me. Nevertheless, John Adams wrote to John Jay shortly after his meeting with the king and said, quote, a distinguished honor to be the first to stand in his majesty's royal presence in a diplomatic character as a diplomat. You know, he, um, he did mention, and it's portrayed well in the, that particular scene of the, of the TV show, John Adams, that 
John Adams thought there was some kind of connection there with the king. The king had respect for <clears throat> what John Adams said to him, how John Adams was humble to be there, but glad to be there as a representative of America. And it seemed, from what John Adams saw, the king appreciated the way he went about it and did it correctly, because many a, uh, um, many a diplomat before that had uh, been unable to go the whole way because they didn't do those three references or said something the wrong way. So um, it certainly would have been very different to any official meeting Adams would have had stateside with those in power during the early years the Americans found him. But this encounter reminded me of the theory or idea um, of the divine right of kings. And here is the definition of the divine right of kings. Quote, the divine right of kings, or divine right, is a political and religious doctrine of royal and political legitimacy. It asserts that a monarch is subject to no earthly authority, deriving the right to rule directly from the will of God. The king is thus not subject to the will of his people, the aristocracy, or any other estate of the realm, including, in the view of some, especially in Protestant countries or during the reign of Henry VIII of England, the Catholic Church. It is often expressed in the phrase, by the grace of God, attached to the titles of a reigning monarch. That's the official definition of the right of kings, the divine right of kings. So many kings, not only in the British royal families, but in other European countries like France, there were certain kings down through the centuries that were really terrible people, wicked kings. I'm not going to give you a list of them, but you can look it up. I mean, and you may have heard from history some of the awful kings that, that went down through the European history. They became drunk with their power and wanted absolute rule over their people. How very different from the king we look up to. Our glorious king doesn't pretend to be God because he is God. He is all-powerful and does not need to be legitimized by man. Look at how Jesus led by example when he was here on earth. He displayed, I think, three attributes to be the perfect ultimate king. Three attributes. And you may have other ideas, but I'll give you these three. Godly character, leadership, and love. As a king, he displayed those three attributes. In abundance, a flawless character, he never sinned. He was a natural leader, not just among his disciples, but wherever he went, they would, they would for example, when he was in the temple, having a debate, conversation with uh, the higher-ups, they would always say, send him to the rabbi. They knew who Jesus was. He just had a natural authority about him. Um, and, you know, we all know his love for all humankind, his unconditional love. But I bet you, if you looked into the eyes of Jesus of Nazareth, you looked him in the eye, you would know you were looking at somebody very, very special. I mean, and he, and he was looking at you, he could probably read your soul, your mind, right there and then, I'm sure. When he looked at you, it was something very special. He was the greatest man that ever lived. 
And who else could be the greatest king of all time, king of kings? There is a scripture here which Paul uh, tells us about. This, the whole the early uh, chapters of the book of Hebrews talk about the nature of God and, and um, Jesus' power as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now there's two points that stand out for me in these verses. In verse 3, the writer of Hebrews, which most of us think was Paul, states, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person. Jesus reflects the majesty of God, as it states here in the New King James Study Bible. There's a little footnote here at the bottom of my page here. Quote, These two expressions, brightness and express image, only occur here in the New Testament. Verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, going on here, the Greek word for brightness expresses the brilliance emanating from a glorious source of light, such as the beams of the sun. Christ, as the effulgence, or brilliant splendor, of God's glory, is the radiance of God, revealing God's glory to humanity. The Greek word translated express image can mean the instrument used in engraving or stamping, but usually it means the image engraved or stamped. In this context, the word means that Christ is the exact representation of God's nature. Since God's essence, nature, and being are invisible, the Son reveals God to us, for he is an exact visible likeness of God. End quote. I think we'd agree with that. Look at Jesus Christ, you look at God the Father. The second point is in verse 4, where Christ is to be exalted more than the angels, no matter how glorious and awe inspiring they are. And by sitting at the right hand of God the Father, he is our intercessor to the Father. Now, like I said a moment ago, Jesus led by example when he was here on earth. Now remember, he did all this in everything in just three and a half years of his ministry. Three and a half years between turning the, the water into wine in Cana and to his death and resurrection. Just three and a half years. What will it be like when he reigns for eternity? Three and a half years, he accomplished so much. Volumes and volumes of books can be written about it. 
what he said, what he did, to people he healed, um, people he raised from the dead. I mean, it's just astounding what he did, what he achieved in three and a half years. But that was his mission. His mission was to come down to earth, to sacrifice himself for all mankind. And before that final sacrifice, he had to get the message of the kingdom of God out to the world. What other wonderful lessons can he teach us when he reigns for eternity? How else can he show us how to emanate him? He knows, Jesus knows each one of us intimately. As it says in Luke 12, 7, the very hairs of your head are numbered. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He will decide what will be the best position for us in his kingdom. He's shaping us now into the person he wants us to be of how to best represent him. Every trial we go through, the ups and downs, they shape our Christian character. If we are to be kings and high priests, leaders in the kingdom, then we must follow his example and turn our back on this world and its ways and its trappings for those who obtain power. I can think of uh, two examples of kings who, once they obtained power, proceeded to abuse it. Two examples here. There are many more, of course, but these two I picked out. Uh, King John of England, uh, King John, uh, he ruled, I believe, 1200s, I think. Um, but a, a terrible king, a wicked king, and certainly abused his position as king. And the previous, I think it was his, uh, his brother, Richard the Lionheart, had been king before him and was a great warrior and leader, fought many wars, won them. And King John lost many battles, lost many wars. Wasn't a very good um, commander-in-chief at all for the British. Uh, looking to, because at, at the time, uh, the English also ruled the western part of France, Brittany and that part, and those parts of western France. Uh, he lost most of that, um, and he had a very steel, a rough hand on the, the British people. Did not respect them in the slightest. And it got so bad after, I'm not sure how many years he was in power for, but in the end, uh, the castle which he lived in in London was surrounded by the people. His time was up. They forced his hand and uh, thus gave us the Magna Carta. And as a lot of you know, the Magna Carta was the, I guess, the founding document, if you can call it that, for the Constitution. Um, but it was forced upon him. He wouldn't, if he had it his way, none of that would have happened. He would have reigned and then had his time and then whoever took over next. But uh, the, the people rose up in the end and and said enough is enough. And a good thing came out of it, not just for the British, but here, hundreds of years later, the American people. Another bad example, King Manasseh in the Bible. Hezekiah's son, not to be mistaken with Ephraim and Manasseh, but King Manasseh was Hezekiah's son. Um, and after such a great king of, uh, of Israel, Hezekiah, along comes a bad one, his very own son. 
And Hezekiah, uh, Manasseh reigned for 55 years, one of the longest reigning kings of all of Israel. As we all know, the good kings, bad kings, Manasseh's own son, Amon, or Ammon, was a bad king too. But after all that Hezekiah had done, the great battles and victory, the, the one time when they were surrounded by the Assyrians, and God passes through the army and destroys them overnight. They're surrounded. It would have been no contest. The Assyrians were conquering all before them before that, and then in one night, God ends that. God was behind Hezekiah. Isaiah was there, guiding him. And, of course, you know, we all know how, at one point, Hezekiah was going to die. God extended his life for another 16 years. God heard his prayers and granted those 16 more years. King Manasseh, on the other hand, completely changed everything. Was a, not even can we mention the same sentence, in a way. He knocked down all the, the stuff that was in the temple. He put up false idols, uh, false images, and allowed all kinds of shenanigans to go on in the temple. And was just a despicable person. Uh, had all the higher-ups in the government that Hezekiah had placed there executed, and uh, made sure nobody would get in his way as he wanted to rule uh, in just a terrible, terrible, awful way. And there came a point, though, where uh, one of the Assyrian kings, I guess uh, Manasseh wasn't paying his, his ways you know, to one of the Assyrian kings, and he was taken captive. And he changed his ways after captivity. And he was allowed to come back and rule for a few more years. Complete change of personality and ideas and direction. And he ruled for many more years as a good king after that. But he had to be humble first, taken away in chains before his lesson was learned. So, our king, we can look at and say, was a good king. Or one king, sorry. Uh, king David. One good king in the Bible. He was uh, the standard bearer for all kings that follow him. Many would call them... You know, the son of David or his father David, the good kings that followed after that. And God said, he was a man after my own heart. There was an example of that David portrayed early on, before he became king, when King Saul was still king, of, I guess, how a good king would show his humility or way of respect, understanding, he, uh, King Saul, they were, they were out looking for David. He had been for a few years. David was on the run from King Saul um, because Saul knew how popular David was among the people. And this one time, uh, King Saul wanted to take a break, take a rest, and so he goes for a nap in uh, this cave. He just enters the, the outside of the cave, lies down, takes a nap. Well, he didn't know that in the back of that same cave, David was there with all his men. And, uh, and I believe all his men were saying, well, here he is, you can take him right now, become king right now. David said, no, 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 no. <coughs> David went up to where Saul was lying, took his sword and just swiped out a corner of his cloak, a piece of cloth out of his cloak and took it with him. And 
you know, a few hours later, whatever, Saul awoke and went on his way. He didn't know that David had been there. Well, the next day, David goes out, stands on a rock, and Saul's men are out there by the hundreds or thousands, stands up on a rock and shouts to Saul's men, here I am, I was this close, I could have killed him. That was showing some uh, amazing restraint, amazing ability to, to, to think about who he was. His time wasn't ready, his time wasn't now, that would come later. And I thought that was just a, a great example of someone who knows his position but respects it. So throughout all of human history, there have been good kings and there have been some bad kings and there have been some really, really bad ones. If a king here on earth is not led by the Holy Spirit like King David was, then he or she is destined to fail. While that king or queen will have their own, you know, their own personal pleasures seen to combine anything or anyone as in times past, they will never truly be happy and it will be the people that suffer as a result. So looking at uh, that scripture that's been up there for a few minutes, uh, Psalm chapter 45 verses 2 through 6. Psalm 45 verses 2 through 6. I know that's different to what I gave you, Brian, but I think those extra verses really get the meaning across. Psalm 45 verses 2 through 6. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. These verses clearly have the messianic theme running through them as it describes the glory and majesty of God's throne. And who's sitting on it? Jesus Christ. Similarly, in Psalm chapter 102, verses 25 through 27, there's another example of this. Psalm chapter 102, verses 25 through 27. Verse 25, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The same for all time. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has reigned in heaven for eternity and will continue to do so. This verse is kind of saying... If the heavens began to fall apart or change in some way, that will not affect God's throne, which shall stand for all time. We can call Jesus our king. 
His Majesty. I mentioned earlier about how John Adams had to act as King George of England. How would you react if you were facing the throne of God, standing for Jesus himself? He is the King of kings, and he is our Savior. I would throw myself down, prostrate before him. I really would. I mean, how, how else could you act? Jesus left his Father in heaven, came to earth, and sacrificed himself for us. And it gets better. He's going to return. He will return. It's going to happen. It's there in the books of the pages of your Bible. Jesus Christ is going to return. The second coming. He will return as our conquering Savior and King, and the whole world will see it. Not just a few people, a few of us. The whole world will see Jesus Christ return. He's coming. It's going to happen. He will return as King of Kings. So with that in mind, Revelation chapter 19. Let's see how that will happen. This really captures it for us. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. So here it is. Revelation 19, chapter 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <laughs> 